Hello and welcome to Build Back Better, a series of online conversations from For the Region about the future of South West Wales. Hello and welcome to the next episode of For the Region's Build Back Better series of conversations. South West Wales is a centre of excellence for renewable energy and we're delighted to be able to showcase a number of those projects from across the region here with you today. We're delighted to welcome Jeremy Smith, Head of Development Strategy at RWE Renewables, Dan McCallum, co-founder of Owl Amman Tawi and Egan Co-op, Mary Sherwood from Gower Power, Joe Kidd, Innovation Manager at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, Chris Foxall, Finance Director at River Simple and Chair of the Economic Strategy Board for Swansea Bay City Deal, Anthony Lloyd, Engineering Department at the Gower College Swansea, James Moon, Specialist Advisor of Offshore Renewable Energy Programme at Natural Resources Wales, and my colleague and host, Dawn Lyle. Thank you, Zoe. Welcome, everyone. We're really excited to be talking to you all today about the subject of renewable energy. And we know both the UK and the Welsh Government have made some commitments to our economy being net zero carbon by 2050. And in Wales, there's a target for the public sector to be net zero by 2030. So those are ambitious targets. Renewable energy is a key growth sector for our region. We have all the natural resources, the wind that we need and the, the coastline and the countryside. Put renewable energy at the heart of our vision for what we want the region to be. So it'll be interesting today to catch up with businesses and organisations from across South West Wales to find out what is happening in the sector and more importantly, what needs to happen to enable the sector to grow and become stronger so that we all have more access to clean green power. And I think only today, Boris Johnson has released an announcement about all our homes across the UK being powered by wind. And that sounds incredibly ambitious, part of his programme to launch a green industrial revolution across the UK. So it'll be interesting to talk to some of the industry players and see what your perspective is on that announcement and how realistic and whether our governments are actually putting in the infrastructure and the investment that's needed and what else is needed to enable that kind of growth in the sector. And I'll be interested to hear all your thoughts on that. I'll start with you, Jeremy, if I may, from RWE Renewables. Now, you're a developer of huge wind farms across South Wales from your HQ in Neath the Talbots. Tell us a little bit about RWE, what you've been up to over the last few years, current projects and future projects. Yeah, as a company, we've been involved in over three gigawatts of projects in Wales, both offshore and onshore predominantly both. We built the UK's first large-scale offshore wind at North Hoyle, which is in North Wales. Most of our offshore activities in North Wales. In South Wales, we built two onshore wind farms recently, so probably over the last two or three years, for Forest West and Manathagwaya, which was, was quite a challenge, but we've got them built and now we're working on other projects in South Wales. Great, and those wind farms took a long time to come to fruition. Is it a challenge to get new wind farms built? What, what are the obstacles to rolling out these <laughs> schemes? <laughs> yeah, for, well, for onshore wind, I, I think really that, that, that you know, it's, it's quite straightforward to develop them. The planning system is pretty good in Wales. The challenges are uh, grid, the availability of cost-effective grid in a, you know, at a timely manner, especially given the amount of development that's happened. There's a lot of solar, there's a lot of wind, there's a lot of competition for capacity so as capacity becomes constrained it's harder to get access to it it becomes more expensive you've got to pay for upgrades and stuff maybe on the transmission network and that is in a climate of the economics becoming more challenging with the removal of subsidies so on the one hand something becomes more costly and on the other hand you've got less money coming in per megawatt hour that you generate so that is a challenge and the other one is really it's kind of slightly linked there's more wind at higher levels so you bigger rotors larger generators will capture more wind so from that perspective that's driving you towards bigger turbines and frankly smaller turbines are being phased out across the world so that's coming anyway so you need bigger turbines to capture more wind well actually some of these blades might be 70 meters long 
and getting those into rural areas and all the little back roads and everything very very difficult so there are whole areas that are inaccessible to turbine components so that's also an issue so is that an issue for or an opportunity for our ports in the region to enable the wind industry to thrive yeah it, it is both of our projects in southwest wales were deliver through Swansea Port but I think the challenge is actually that was with 145 meter tall turbines so the blades were I think probably about 50 meters and if the blades were 65 or 70 meters you could still get them into that port I'm sure you could probably get them onto the motorway network but whether you could then get them up into the sticks of the Cambria mountains or far west Wales that's perhaps more difficult. And how do you feel about these announcements, particularly Boris Johnson's comments today about the, the target to get everyone powered by renewable energy in the short term future? Is the government doing enough? What needs to happen to make that a reality? Well, it's, it's good to see that the government's making announcements like this. The cost effective technologies are being supported and encouraged. And of course, none of us want to pay too much for our electricity, I'm sure. So there needs to be a consideration of the cost element. I think what's interesting is there's 160 million that's quoted for Humberside, Teesside, Wales and Scotland, which is a little bit vague. I've been trying to work out what that means for Wales actually this morning, but I can't find out any information at all so far. But keep the eyes peeled, we'll see where it goes. And it's for ports and infrastructure, which again, infrastructure covers a large sort of swathe of things so I guess my hope would be that some of it goes on grid. Do you think that RWE are committed to South West Wales? Do you think your business sees a lot of new wind farms coming forward in South Wales? You talked about offshore wind being predominantly in North Wales, is that because it's windier or because it's easier somehow to get planning for those things up in North Wales? What's your outlook on our region over the next few years? I'm sure it has a great future. There's a lot of talk about floating wind off the coast of Pembrokeshire, which is great. And that's really interesting. As a company, yes, we're committed to Wales, the UK, the rest of the world, to be honest. We are the number one developer of, of projects in Wales. So I think that shows our commitment to Wales anyway. The Southwest region, it's all about the opportunities, really. So there are potential opportunities maybe on the forest estate that needs tenders to come forward. So you can only tender for the, something that's out there. So, so far, we haven't seen a lot of activity on tenders in the last year or so. With the climate emergency happening, perhaps pace of things like that can will increase and that would be a good thing. So my understanding then is it's not really up to RWE to say, OK, let's let's build a wind farm here. You're waiting for tenders from people like Natural Resources Wales, is it? Well, it's uh, kind of a mix of both, really. So, yes, there is a, a an element of development on sites that is, is kind of proactively driven, driven by ourselves looking for sites. And then there's also a response to a tendering process. So it's, it's definitely both. RWE is a huge organisation, global, multinational, and as you say, you've been in this region and very active over the last few years. I'm also interested to get into more community-led energy development, and we're delighted to be joined today by Dan McCallum, who is involved in a number of local renewable energy projects, working very closely with communities for community-owned initiatives. Welcome, Dan. Nice to see you. Good morning, good morning. Tell us about EGNI Co-op and other projects that you've been involved with. What's the role of community-led renewable energy? Is that a growth sector? Yeah, especially in our region, there's some really, really positive projects that have happened. So we're a charity, Owl Lemons Howe. We've set up two co-ops, Owl and EGNI. Owl's a community wind farm just north of Pontadawa. And then EGNI is installing rooftop solar um, across kind of schools, businesses and community buildings really throughout Wales. But we are doing a lot in the city region, especially working with Pembrokeshire schools and Swansea schools. And what are some of the opportunities and challenges that you see? How do you initiate a new project? And do you see more community-based renewable energy projects rolling out over the next few years? I think there's a real opportunity, especially for sort of rooftop solar, where there's a, a good on-site use of, of electricity. As Jeremy was saying, connecting projects into the national grid is, is quite difficult and it's, it's going to need investment from government and from developers. But with rooftop solar, they, they've got an existing 
energy demand on site. So if you can size the solar project on a roof to, to, to sort of help meet that demand, then you're not actually exporting that much into the grid. It's being used on site. So I think there's a real opportunity there. And that's certainly what we found with the, with the Swansea schools and Pembrokeshire schools. And there's also a great kind of educational development that can happen from that, engaging people in energy work. So we're, again, working with the schools to, to follow that up. With the climate emergency issues, we just need to engage people in these projects. So I think building what Jeremy said, there's also a real opportunity for kind of shared ownership between large commercial projects and community cooperatives to kind of help people feel more part of some of these large wind farms that are on their doorstep. If they've actually got an ownership stake as part of that project, they're going to be much more supportive. And that, that may avoid some of the problems of planning that we've had in the past and just make us all feel part of the challenge to help tackle climate change. And is there support available for community groups? If you run a community centre or you've got a bit of rooftop that you think, actually, could we do something with this? What's the first port of call? And how would you go about making that happen if, if you were in a community with a building and you thought this is a, this is a possible? Is there support? Is there funding? Yeah, there's funding through Welsh Government Energy Service for feasibility costs. Um, but we're also finding people are emailing us directly now about buildings that they've got they've kind of heard about solar on different schools and I think you know it's it also needs to be sort of driven by the council as well a lot of them have declared climate emergencies but it's been especially good working with Swansea with the offices there and in Pembrokeshire where the kind of offices have really seen this as an opportunity to get because we don't there's no charge up front for the panels so it's just a way of them getting some tangible projects on their buildings you know relatively quickly i mean that within councils they're struggling for capacity so if they're able to work with a local co-op to actually do the work talk to the grid and do various you know structural surveys it kind of frees up their capacity and it's a good partnership Fantastic, yeah. I'll bring Mary Sherwood in. Mary Sherwood is here on behalf of Gower Power. Mary, I know Gower Power were involved in a community share offer, which is quite a common model, I think, for some of these kind of more community-based initiatives. Tell us about Gower Power. Okay, well, Gower Power has a number of work strands to do with improving sustainability and sort of community resilience and response to ecological crisis and climate emergency and having an economy that doesn't work for everyone. We do have a seat on the board of skis, which is a project that was something that actually got put into action some years ago, putting solar panels on the roofs of schools and community buildings and um, so Gower Power ran the community share offer for that and then more recently we ran a community share offer for Gower Regeneration which is the solar farm um, in Dunvant. How that works really is that you get some finance so we used Finance Wales to actually put the panels in place in Dunvant we used Robert Owen Community Bank, I think, to use them for, to put them in place for skis. And then once you've got that finance in place, obviously it, it deals with your capital outlay, but then you've got the finance charges and that eats into your profits. We run a community share offer to enable people to purchase shares, which means we can pay down the finance sooner. And then you're spending less of your profit paying off your debts. And from our point of view, what that means is there's more profit to go into the pot for community benefit funds. And, and that's what we're all about. Moving assets like solar farms into community ownership means that all the profits that you get from selling that electricity goes on projects that the members want to see taken forward. So Skis has funded some really great work. Gallery Generation hasn't yet. It's too early for that pot to have been built up. But this is a model that's going on all over the place. And it enables, I suppose, communities and community groups to establish a level of financial independence as well then, because there's an income stream, whether that's for community benefits or for the work of local groups and charities, and to give something back to communities. Jeremy, can I bring you in from the perspective of RWE as a big player in the industry? Are there opportunities for shared ownership? I know that RWE focus quite heavily on community benefits as well. Can you talk to us a bit about that from a large company perspective? I think one of the first things I would say is, look, as, as we decarbonize, the electricity demand is expected to potentially treble, maybe quadruple, right? So there's going to have to be an awful lot of renewable power. And there's space for everyone in how that happens. The community sector alone couldn't 
meet that kind of requirement it, it will be considerable so everyone needs to be a part and actually what we need is more projects we're working with dan actually and and rob at community energy wales to deliver a shared ownership project at alwyn forest in north wales and that's new to us and new to them but but the the kind of process is they set up a co-op and that co-op will invest up to 15 percent of the capital cost of building that wind farm and then they'll get 15 percent of the revenues moving forward so the benefit for us is yeah the community is engaged it helps to meet welsh government policy direction and hopefully there's probably slightly less opposition locally as well when it comes to a planning because that will allow giving something back to people locally speaking for dan probably the, some of the benefits they have is is slightly de-risked in terms of the development they're not funding the development and they've got an opportunity in a bigger project so there's economies of scale so that kind of model could work quite well i think yeah, great example of partnership working. And as you say, it helps to bring forward larger schemes with the backing of industry. I'm really interested now to bring in Chris Foxall, who is here to talk to us about River Simple, which is a hydrogen energy project. But first of all, Chris, I'd like to talk to you with a different hat on, which is that you're chair of the Economic Strategy Board for Swansea Bay City deal and obviously as we've talked about we need intervention from government and we need industry working together and we need communities on board but how important to the vision for the region is renewable energy when it comes to city deal what's happening at city deal to promote renewable energy across southwest Wales Yes, thanks, Dawn. Well, energy is one of the key themes within City Deal, and there's quite a few projects actually that have renewable energy involved, either renewable energy or, or decarbonisation in, involved in them. So, so you've got the Pembroke Dock Marine project, and we haven't talked much about marine and tidal, but that's a huge opportunity for Wales. The Homes as Power Stations, which is still being worked up, and they'll be net generators of renewable energy. What exactly we do with that? And we're not quite sure, and, but it will certainly be integrated with other decarbonised efforts that are going on with Welsh Government through housing. There's the low carbon project in Neath Patel, but also where there's a focus on using excess power from the technology centre to produce hydrogen store it and use it for, for vehicles. And I think the city deal as a framework is allowing us to think now across the region, across local authorities and different bodies as to how we put together an energy strategy so we don't we don't have one necessarily for the region so you'll have partners such as wales and west utilities and our electricity providers with some of their own energy assessments and projections for investment uh, which aren't necessarily aligned with local authorities plans or regional plans so those conversations have to be pulled together so one of the things that we're seeing again from from the city deal is that we really need to have a strategic approach to what we're doing so as you probably are aware, Swansea Bay City deal was very different to the Cardiff Capital Regions deal, where they put together a wider investment fund and then looked at priorities and challenges and how to fund them. So it was more of a top-down approach, whereas ours was more project-based. And what we've had to do over the last, I'd say, six to 12 months is put together our portfolio business case to say, at a higher level, how do all these projects fit into what we want to do regionally? And that's been a really good exercise because it's forced us to start thinking about where we want to go. And if we put together a comprehensive energy strategy, primarily, you know, including renewable energy, if we end up being net or excess producers from the region, what do we want to do with that? Do we just want to export it? Or actually, if you think about how we built up all our metallurgical businesses around the fuel source really we want to pull more business in so we want to look at other areas and so things like data centers and manufacturing we'd rather attract those type of businesses to the region because of our low cost renewable energy power rather than just exporting it across the grid so yes i i think there's quite a few things happening at a regional level and it's all going to be good for the region so you've got the joint corporate committee which sat within the Welsh Bill at the moment. So the regions will have formalised corporate entities, uh, which will allow for more funding mechanisms to come through. So, you know, as we go through Brexit and you've, you, you know, you lose your structural funding out of Europe, there's ultimately some funding come from central government, 
what they call the uh, the shared prosperity funds and they will be invested regionally now it's still undecided if they go directly through welsh government or they'll come directly to the region but nonetheless they will be for the region so we, we have to have a clear strategy and at the same time we have to be ambitious and have investable projects so jeremy talked about things being project-based and, and one of the things we need to do is have more projects because ultimately when you can pull in the private sector and you can really focus on you know pooling your procurement and aligning that there's less viability or gap funding required than you'd imagine up front so it's really pulling together all the different purse strings and all the different pots of funding all the different spending but that that just needs that strategic approach Thank you, Chris. We'll come back and talk about hydrogen in a bit, but you mentioned offshore and marine. You mentioned marine energy and, and the city deal projects related to that. So I'd like to bring in Joe Kidd. Joe, you're very involved in marine projects across our region and you've worked in a number of different capacities. And I think now you're innovation manager at the offshore renewable energy catapult. What's your perspective on all of this? Where do you see the big opportunities and the big obstacles for the sector? I, I guess I got a few different hats. So I, I'm working for the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, which is a UK-wide organisation to support innovation in the offshore renewable space. We've been heavily involved in the growth of offshore wind and really helped with bringing costs down to a point where now offshore wind is, is comparable with fossil fuel costs. And at times in the year, delivers renewables deliver 50% of our energy needs which which I think if if people looked at that 10 years ago a lot of people would never have seen that coming so we've made huge progress I think in terms of opportunities yeah it's it's still going to be wind but hydrogen is another huge opportunity so within the catapult I'm involved in MIS which is the Marine Energy Engineering Centre of Excellence which is looking to support innovation both with technology developers and the supply chain across Wales but that involves Swansea Union Cardiff Union Cardiff Met and that's part of Pembroke Dock Marine project that, that Chris mentioned earlier but I'm also project managing Milford Haven Energy Kingdom which is a hydrogen project looking at the potential for an energy system based on hydrogen so how can we make use of of hydrogen, whether that's transport, whether that's heating, whether that's for storage. Wales and West Utility uh, are involved in that as a partner and they're very serious about transitioning their gas network, getting completely off fossil fuels, which is really encouraging. Uh, hydrogen is something that's been talked about for for decades, but it does really feel like it, it's getting to a point where it, it's hydrogen's time. And as the catapult, we recently completed a bit of work looking at how hydrogen can be used to enable more offshore wind development. There's various kind of studies that have looked at how much more renewables we're, we're going to need on the system to hit 2050 targets for, for net zero. Some of them talk about 120 gigawatts, which just to put that in context, that's about 15,008 megawatt turbines that, that Jeremy was talking about. So whether that's onshore wind, whether that's solar, whether that's community scale renewables, that's a huge amount of growth in, in renewables that's required. And, and I think a lot of that focus is going to be on that growth is going to have to happen with offshore wind wave and tidal is going to have a part hopefully but the bulk of it is going to be offshore wind and for Wales it does really feel like we've missed out with the growth of fixed offshore wind but Jeremy mentioned floating winds and yeah that's the huge opportunity for us the momentum behind that is growing massively it's effectively a floating platform moored to the seabed with a wind turbine on it but what it does is it enables development in deeper water sites and in the Irish Sea and what's being referred to as the Celtic Sea there's about 50 gigawatts of potential there if we developed all of that that's potentially close to half of what we need to get to 2050. And yeah, in terms of the 
benefits to Wales of that with our supply chain that could be huge. And in Pembrokeshire it's a really key sector I suppose the Pembroke Dock Marine project is aimed at making Pembrokeshire a real hub for innovation and investment in this sector with a serious background in not so renewable energy sources in Pembrokeshire. I think a third of UK energy comes through Pembrokeshire in one way or another. So it's a massive sector for the economy there. And Pembroke Dock Marine is looking at a project to encourage businesses to come and try out different technologies and explore innovation. Am I right about that? It's focused on offshore renewables primarily. It's a handful of projects. So one is upgrades to Pembroke Port to enable turbines to be brought in for lay down areas. So a lot of investment in the port infrastructure. Meese, the centre of excellence, is one of those projects. Meta, Jess Hooper and Green Energy Wales is involved in, has identified areas within the waterway where, as you say, wave and tidal developers can demonstrate their technology and there's also a a large demonstration area that's been identified it was initially identified for wave development but now with the growth of floating wind it's being looked at for floating wind development as well great well let's talk about hydrogen then and i'll bring chris foxall back in because i know you're a you're a real advocate of hydrogen and you have been for a number of years Tell us what you see as the big opportunity for hydrogen, Chris, and talk to us a little bit about River Simple. So what really got me excited about hydrogen was the fact that it's it's just not it's not competing against things like wind and solar. It's an energy vector that is really cross sector. And I think one of the big issues, I suppose, for growing our renewable energy developments are are storage, really, the intermittency problem. And that is a big problem because obviously the grid needs to be balanced and there hasn't been a great way to do that. So my view is hydrogen was inevitable (laughs) as soon as I start to really understand some of the virtues of how it can help bring forward a low carbon environment. So in terms of River Simple, so River Simple is a manufacturer of zero emission hydrogen vehicles. We're based in Mid Wales. We're manufacturing the cars, but not for sale. We're manufacturing them on a mobility as a service basis. So we offer out a, a car or, or a van on a contract for 12 months or 36 months. And the reason we do that is as the designer and manufacturer of the vehicle, it's in our gift to really build the longevity and the efficiency of the vehicle. And if we were to sell it, we wouldn't really be incentivized to do that. So, so we offer out the service so we can design our cars to be more efficient. And it's full, it's full service. We actually supply the fuel as well. So, so ultimately what that means, River Simple ends up being the owner of all these vehicles on our balance sheet and also the wholesale purchaser of the hydrogen. And that means we're quite an important part of the value chain. So if we're looking for an area of high value for hydrogen to get it going, the highest value is really transportation because it's mobility and it's light. So the transport sector is a really important sector to move the hydrogen economy forward. And, you know, again, as, as a wholesale purchaser of the hydrogen, we're in a position once we manufacture lots of cars to be able to be a new route to market for some renewable energy schemes. So hydrogen comes in different colours, actually. It's all transparent, but they call it different colours based on where it's originated from. So you've got brown hydrogen, which comes from fossil fuels like coal, and then grey, which comes from natural gas, blue hydrogen, which is more biogas with carbon capture, and green hydrogen, which is all the electrolysis and anything that really comes from renewable bioelectrolysis is completely clean with no emissions. And I think going forward, there'll be a mixture, obviously, with a focus on everything going to green eventually as we know natural gas is a fossil fuel that's not going to be replaced uh, anytime soon and we really see our role in the value chain as being extremely important so that's decarbonizing energy and also within you know for jobs within the hydrogen economy and we sit then at the top of the supply chain for the actual car manufacturing So we really see that we can pull a lot of those jobs into Wales and into the region. In terms of our strategy for manufacturing, we're looking to produce one vehicle per plant. And due to our lightweight body structure, we're using composites and and we don't need to have 
a factory producing 200,000 vehicles a year. So, so we'll have multiple factories across Wales for different vehicles as we expand. So we'll have a factory down in southwest Wales for sure. We think that's better also for a more resilient economy. And we're at a really exciting time in the company because we've got through our technology hurdles and our prototyping and now we've just got our first customer ready vehicle approved to go on the road. So so we're starting our trial in Abergavenny. We've put a, a refueler in, in there to start off. We'll be building 20 more cars. And we're also involved in the Smilford Haven Energy Kingdom project. So we'll have two cars we're building for that particular project as well. And we really feel this is the right place to start for, for hydrogen. So local vehicles like cars, vans, and also buses. Great. Yeah, the Energy Kingdom project in Milford Haven is looking to put a refueling station for hydrogen in near the train station. So I suppose we'll see over the coming years hydrogen refueling stations popping up across the region, which is exciting. And my other understanding is that hydrogen has the potential to run through the existing gas infrastructure. Am I right about that? That hydrogen can run through the, the pipes and things that already go into our houses for gas? Is yes. It? So town gas in London used to be 60% hydrogen. There is some work to do because it can actually pass through the walls of some of the piping, not all of it's fit for hydrogen, to be honest with you, but most of the, the new gas connections are using hydrogen-ready infrastructure. There needs to be regulatory change as well. As, as far as I understand it, at the moment, you can't have more than 0.1% of the gas network being hydrogen. And really, I think we could probably increase the potency to somewhere between 20 and 30% without having to do significantly much. So the gas grid is a huge storage mechanism for hydrogen. And this is why Wales and West are looking at biogas and, and hydrogen. It's easier to move molecules around than it is necessarily electrons. And we've got a huge storage. I think we're one of the, the most comprehensive gas networks in the world, actually. So, so why not use that? So, yes, I think the ambition to decarbonize the gas grid is a really, really smart one. And it takes a lot of pressure off the electricity grid at the same time. Yeah, that's great to hear. I'd like to bring in James Moon from Natural Resources Wales. James, you're a specialist advisor with regards to offshore renewable energy. What is Natural Resources Wales's role in all of this? Thanks, Dawn. NRW has a, a number of roles. There's two main roles in terms of offshore renewables. The first being as a, as a regulator for marine license applications. So any development that intends to go into the sea and deposit something on the seabed, a cable or a foundation for a device needs to get a marine license for us if it's below mean high water springs so that's one side of the organization and then separate to that we also are the statutory nature conservation body for wales we advise on impacts to the environment so designated sites habitats and species so in terms of the offshore renewable energy sector at, at present from what joe was saying earlier in terms of an increase in potential for offshore wind in north wales and, and floating offshore wind in the celtic sea also, the ongoing interest in the wave and tidal sector, particularly in Pembrokeshire, we've actually seen that increase dramatically. And also the requests on us as advisors and as a regulator. And to, to try and respond to that, we've created the Offshore Renewable Energy Programme, uh, which I manage. So the Offshore Renewable Energy Programme is, is essentially an integrated approach across all of NRW's remit in, in terms of marine. So the way that we advise on renewable energy projects, the way we write guidance and try and fill some of the key evidence gaps. And so one of the key things at the moment is to try and reduce the uncertainty really and consenting risk with renewables because obviously the offshore wind sector is quite well developed in in other areas of the UK and England, for example, and off Scotland, and some of the sites that were spoken about earlier off North Wales. Whereas the, the wave and tidal sector is in its infancy in terms of the, it's more of the innovation stadium just getting prototypes and small-scale devices into water. And at present, there are some uncertainties around how those devices have the potential to impact the marine environment and the species and habitats that are within it. So we're working with Marine Energy Wales and the Marine Energy Engineering Centre of Excellence that Joe mentioned earlier to try and tackle some of these key issues. So that's the sort of our remit. And in terms of the other wider energy remit, NRW has, has a massive input as well. Yes, yeah, so Natural Resources Wales is responsible for managing large areas of, of land that could be put to beneficial use for renewable energy generation. 
I'll ask all of you, anyone that wants to come in on this, how important is community engagement in all of this and the demands for green tariffs? And is that coming through from communities? Do we need to do more to inform people about what is a properly green tariff? Where does community engagement come into all of this? Did a very little bit of community engagement at the last green fair and that was kind of in readiness for our retail offer so Gower Power is, is soon going to be providing green electricity for local homes and businesses very limited number because it's only a small farm but what was really interesting about that was that people are really motivated to buy green they want to buy green but actually the landscape is very confusing and for myself and I've I'm not an expert, but I perhaps know a bit more about it than, than other people. I find it baffling comparing different green providers and looking at why the tariffs vary so much. And this is something that we're having discussions about in Gower Power right now, because we will be launching our, our retail offer within the next couple of months with our new retail partner. And they are a particularly pricey green energy retailer and really that's because they invest so much in generation rather than purchasing things like offsetting credits. So this is something that we're really mindful of. If we're going to prepare people to pay a little bit more to buy their fuel from us, we need to be able to justify that additional expense and we're hoping to be able to educate people along the way about how they can scrutinise those green tariffs and look out for greenwashing and invest in the tariffs from the providers that are really going to make a difference to our climate emergency. Anyone else like to come in? I could just say a few points actually. There's a big picture thing here. You know, the fact the Prime Minister has announced something today about offshore wind investment. This is the first bullet point of, I think, a 10 point action plan that he's committed to there. There's a change since COVID. I feel that. Probably there's been a change actually from before COVID. You know, the sentiment that we've had on public exhibitions hasn't been quite so anti as it used to be five, ten years ago. So I think that, you know, people are starting to realise that, that the planet is in, in danger and, and they need to contribute towards saving it. So I think there is a change of sentiment that probably extends to a large proportion of the population. I'd like to bring in next from Gower College, Swansea, Anthony Lloyd. Anthony, what's your perspective on some of this? Are you working with young people who are considering careers in this sector? We certainly are, um, but on, if I'm honest, when I say this sector, on a small scale sector, we don't really, you know, everyone's been told about large scale production, which is fantastic, don't get me wrong. But so far, the sort of mindset of the youngsters is more the sort of smaller, heat pump type, type technologies, solar PV, etc. But nothing on this sort of scale. We don't really, we're not really involved with ourselves and the, the, the mindset of the students that we're getting coming in is that sort of smaller scale thing, you know, the local, the, the downstream, what I call downstream. I, I think that the Welsh Government at least has said within a few years, gas boilers will be phased out altogether. In, yeah, unfortunately, they only say worse and unfortunately, however you take it, in new builds. I don't see that many more houses being built in Wales. So it's, it depends whether they're going down that road. If we're going to start building in, in Midwells, which are very difficult to build in that terrain, then yes, the, on the smaller scale building sites, you don't see gas boilers anywhere. Uh, it's in, in the larger scale building sites where you've got the big developers, they're, they're getting away with putting gas boilers in. But on the smaller sort of self-build or smaller housing sites, they are going for renewables naturally anyway. It's interesting now we've been working with a lot of local authorities lately and they're moving over to renewable technologies, again, on a small scale with heat pump technology, MVHR, battery storage and so on, which that, that's very interesting to, to see and quite, quite exciting to be fair. And hopefully that will sort of send the message across to Joe Public when they're changing their gas or oil boiler that there are better things to use. Biggest problem I see, I and mean, I'm going off, off your question there quite significantly, the biggest question I see is the feature of the RHI due to change in the next couple of years then and, and what they're going to put up instead. So you're talking there about the renewable heat incentive, which but, is uh, government grants to support householders and commercial buildings because the cost of installing a, an air source heat pump is at the moment so much higher than installing a gas boiler. How important do you think those renewable heat incentives are? To be honest, I think they're very important. I'm involved with a lot of businesses and you take the RHI away and a lot of those businesses will not be selling renewable technology anymore. They'll be going just on the gas boiler market. Oil boiler versus a renewable air source heat pump, certainly. 
and oil boiler is not a million miles behind these days, but again, the renewable heat incentive is what's attracting the customer to, to go for a heat pump rather than an oil boiler, because the difference they're getting paid back over the seven years, so they don't mind them. It's after that. I mean, the talks I've heard are a fixed figure upfront payment, which is appealing to some people, but the upfront payment they've, I've heard rumoured is not going to attract people. It's, again, it's too low. Again, I'm talking the small scale stuff, so it's, it does worry me. It was mentioned earlier on in the meeting about projections of the, the energy usage tripling over the coming years. This is what I see as being a, a way of reducing that tripling somehow or another. You know, yes, there's going to be more electric requirement with the heat pump, electric cars, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, yeah, but how do we reduce that? That's, that's sort of, you've got to work on both ends of the market to me to, to get things right. But yes, exciting times ahead. Part of my reason for attending groups like yourselves is to try and identify any skills gaps we see coming up. Certainly domestically, there's, there's a significant skills gap. Getting the right heat and engineer to install a heat pump and probably design the system is, is an issue. A lot of companies having to go at it out there. They, they come in, they do a bit, make a lot of mistakes, fail, and then leave an awful system to some poor customer somewhere. Uh, you're hearing of that all the time, which is, is not right. Again, taking the RHI out, that'll probably make it worse because people will just, if they're having a heat pump, then they will have a heat pump installed by a plumber somewhere who's just been used to sticking a combi boiler in somewhere. You know, it's a completely different line of work. So Let's talk about that with the wider group. Let's talk about the skills gap and opportunities for young people who are perhaps looking at their careers and thinking about the renewable energy sector, either in domestic installations, as you've mentioned, or working for companies like RWE. Who would like to come in and let's talk about the skills gap and the opportunities. My first point actually is, you know, we are talking about these big projects, but you know, I don't think the gas grid is going away anytime soon. And there's, there's hydrogen ready boilers now. I mean, Bosch have created a boiler which is, has got lower NOx emissions and a natural gas boiler, highly, highly efficient. And there's big support from Westminster on hydrogen boiler rollout. So there's an immense amount when we're looking at retrofitting, which is going to help the local and foundational economy, be it, you know, installing car chargers in homes, heat pumps, you know, what, what have you. I mean, from, from the housing perspective, we've got to decarbonize all our stock. And a lot of these homes are not necessarily suited for solar panels and what have you so we've got to really look at the optimal way to decarbonizing whether that's you know partly fabric partly new technologies all of that needs local skills and local jobs there's a huge opportunity there that's one of the big expenses we're going to have in the housing sector is retrofitting so there's a big skills gap when it comes to river simple we see there's a major problem <laughs> and it's not just in the auto space uh, handling different type of technology in our cars, but it's across the hydrogen spectrum. Everyone's calling out for people with skills in safety handling of hydrogen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely huge opportunities. What we want to make sure is that we've got the things to work on. We've got these projects to work on so we can fund the skills gaps and be there for apprenticeships and employment. Yeah, and as you say, the more projects we've got in the region, the more opportunities there are for apprenticeships and for training to happen on those projects, which then start to meet some of that demand for those new skills. Would anyone else like to come in on skills and opportunities for young people? Conscious Jess Hooper hasn't managed to join us, but one piece of work that, that Marine Energy Wales is doing for Welsh Government at the moment is looking at the wider economic opportunities for offshore renewables and one of those work packages is looking specifically at the skills and training needs and working with Pembrokeshire College, working with colleges in Swansea and elsewhere in the region to start building up those skills that are required for, for offshore just wanted to come back on what Anthony was saying there. He's entirely right that a lot of what we talked about at the start was large-scale generation. But interesting that Boris Johnson did focus on the domestic market. As a government, they could be doing to support individuals decarbonising their own homes, and whether that's PV, uh, air source, heat pumps. I was just a bit surprised he focused on the domestic market. Dan, what do you think are the skills gaps from a community energy point of view? 
I, th I think I think just following on from Anthony's point, we've also just got to raise awareness ourselves of the range of skills that are required to sort of meet the climate emergency. So that like, so when we take a young, we've had about a thousand children come to visit our wind farm above Pontadawa. And the main thing is they're just gobsmacked by the sort of size and they're just blown away by it, the scale. And also just really interested in, in the kind of work that is required. I mean, my own daughter is a data analyst and there's a big requirement for that, you know, in terms of what Jeremy was saying about looking at the grid, how much energy can you put onto the grid, how much can be consumed on site. You have to look at half hourly data. It's just a, it's a specialist area just in itself. You know, the legal side, getting land rights, le leases, options on wind farm sites and on solar, rooftop solar sites is another area. It's just encouraging young people to think about what opportunities there are. So when they go to talk to Anthony at the colleges, it's not necessarily just a practical thing of putting in an air source heat pump. They're perhaps thinking about other areas of work that, that they could be looking at and creating really good careers in. And as Chris was saying, the hydrogen economy you know, looking at opportunities there, perhaps linking up community wind farms with hydrogen to help create that hydrogen vector within a local economy. I and mean, it'd be really exciting to see that rolled out. Yeah, so it's those sorts of opportunities, just making people aware that we don't just have to think about standard type jobs, you know, where people's expectations are governed by perhaps what they've learned in school. Yeah, really important point, looking at the whole challenge. How do you get planning? How do you get licensing and, and, uh, and all the data? Such a huge number of jobs potentially in, in the sector. Jeremy, how many people does RWE employ locally and, and do you run apprenticeships and that sort of thing? Oh, gosh, um, you caught me on the hop there. I think last count we had something like 120 people employed in Wales and they're right across Wales. So they'll be from operations technician type people working on projects in this region right through to people working in offshore port of Mostyn and hydro in Dolgarog. so do we have apprentices yes we've had an apprentice program and yeah again top of my head i think we put 26 people through that program working with colleges Llandrislo college was one i think the points i was going to make on the opportunity though is look heat compared to power heat is a huge challenge yeah and it's not really started yet there's an awful lot more energy consumed as heat than there is consumed as electricity and the the variation between summer and winter is that much greater as something that hasn't really started to be addressed it's clearly something that is a huge opportunity for skills there's going to be an awful lot of activity to decarbonize heat and you know it's going to be hard to do that cheaply we all know the kind of things that need to be done and it's going to going to be difficult to do there's going to be a lot more changing boilers changing systems improving the efficiency of houses you know retrofits a real problem and as has already been mentioned it's, it's partly about reducing the energy demands of homes isn't it so that they need less heat whether that's better insulation and then the fabric of the building but it's looking at the whole thing and I also think for our region if you look at some of the heavy industry in places like Portal that you're talking about heat and decarbonizing heat how does the steelworks generate its own heat energy from renewable sources or at least how might we capture some of that waste heat and waste energy from heavy industry I think there's a key opportunity in, in Nice Patel but to be looking at you know decarbonizing industry massive challenge for the UK and I know there are a number of projects and initiatives working specifically with Tata Steel and others to look at decarbonization of that thinking about the wider opportunities for our regional economy what about the supply chain and opportunities for businesses to get involved in the sector maybe there are businesses in our region that are not currently working in anything to do with renewables who would like to come in and talk a little bit about what are some of the opportunities for businesses in our region and do they know that those opportunities exist I will just mention that the National Procurement Service Wales is where the council gets all of its energy from and it is 100% renewable and as carbon reduction strategies kind of roll out from Welsh Government and across Welsh local authorities obviously the initial scope of activity is on things that are within our immediate control so our own buildings our own fuel supplies but then the next level is procurement and what businesses are we working with and that there is going to be more of a call from the Welsh public sector for 
businesses that we have contracts with to be green and to source their own energy from renewable sources. And I'm not sure if that message is really getting out there, that actually businesses should be looking for green energy providers themselves and to improve the energy efficiency of their own fleet of vehicles and, and their buildings and things like that if they want to secure public sector contracts going forward. That's a key point and we talk about it a lot. Procurement has the potential to drive behaviour change and that's a key lever that we need to pull, isn't it? Chris, what do you think are some of the supply chain opportunities for businesses in our region? Yeah, people do struggle very hard with trying to make sure procurement's right and you have all of the local supply chain and community benefit impacts that you want. And one of the key things really is quite often things aren't measured properly. We might look about at how we spend our first pound, where it goes beyond that is very, very different. And that's what we really need to understand. So you're using a local distributor. You could say, I spend all my money locally, yet they're buying products from overseas and that money's leaking. And we don't monitor that. We have no real good way of seeing where that money goes. So that's incumbent on us to have better monitoring and in the digital era that we're in and with all the technology out there that's something we'll have to keep moving towards but you're right I think all businesses have to start thinking about if they want investment they want public funds or any sort of investment there are discernments now outside of just what's my return on investment it's the non-financial returns that people are looking at societal benefits environmental benefits and actually that's where consumer pressure is coming from and and investor pressure. So companies really need to think about their carbon footprint and what they're about, what they stand for and how they can make a difference. We do need to work collaboratively to put together projects that are fairly close to being commercially viable. And that's where things like city deal funding and prosperity funding can come in to make the difference. But at the same time as we're doing that, we need to think about how do we pull the supply chain in? And I think you'll see more from governments on you know, if we're going to fund you through a grant program or any other incentive, what are you doing in terms of sustainable jobs and societal impacts? Yeah, I think the Welsh Government call that their, their something for something approach. That uh, if you're looking for support or investment from Welsh Government, expecting a higher standard of sustainability within businesses. And that's obviously a key driver. Who else would like to come in? Anything to do with the supply chain opportunities, Dan? Yeah, just to agree with Chris, really, it's very hard to measure local benefits. It's almost like you know it when you see it. I mean, one of the businesses we've worked with is Leggett and Platt in Ammonford, uh, Carmarthenshire. And they, they were actually, they're actually the biggest user of the grid in Ammonford. They make parts for, for cars. So we've installed 200 kilowatts on their factory. So just reducing their energy costs and requirements of the grid, because it's all used on site. They've got some big equipment. Uh, we've also worked with precision engineering in the Ronda um, and Pontus research on the heads of the valleys. I need perhaps to talk to Chris afterwards. I think there is an opportunity with the city region, city deal to, to work more closely with businesses to try and reduce their energy costs because perhaps they haven't got the money themselves to invest up front in rooftop solar, but working with an energy co-op um, is, is a good way to, to try and get renewables installed. And I think there is a real opportunity to sort of do a lot more to build those partnerships across the region. Joe, would you like to come in? Yeah, I guess for, from an offshore renewables perspective, supply chain needs to be a real focus. We look at a lot of these opportunities to see where the benefit to, to Wales and our economy can be. And looking back, wind, both onshore and offshore, I think has been seen as a big success. But having been one of the leaders in developing the technology in the UK, there was a real missed opportunity that that investment didn't carry on in the technology development and all those benefits then went to Denmark, Germany, elsewhere who now provide the vast majority of the, the turbine technology. I think with wave and tidal, we're again in the UK at the forefront of the technology development, and it would be a real shame to miss those opportunities of having the actual technology suppliers in the UK and their associated supply chain, because that's where you get the bulk of the economic benefit. 
and we're quite lucky at here in Swansea. It's come about because of the work of, of Swansea University, but we've got Marine Power Systems, who are one of the leading wave technology developers, and they've been diversifying into developing floating platforms for floating wind as well. So I, I think it's really important for us in Wales to be supporting that supply chain and enabling them to both develop in the wave and tidal sector, but also to, to successfully bid into the growing floating wind sector once it happens. But that, as you say, that's going to require a lot of support from Welsh Government to make that happen. So important there, isn't it, to just try and invest for the longer term in building up the industry and, and keeping it here, that that sort of knowledge economy benefit and the local jobs for you know, what, what turn out to be global industry sectors. The fuel cell, hydrogen fuel cell was invented in Swansea. So <laughs> it would be really nice, wouldn't it, to have a hydrogen kind of cluster and an industry around hydrogen in, in Southwest Wales. So, you know, it would be coming home. That'd be great. And the other thing I was thinking, there are some UK clusters for offshore. And I know there's certainly there's one in North Wales, which we've been heavily involved with, but it's unfortunate there isn't one in sort of southwest of, of Wales uh, around the marine and, and the floating that could happen there. But, you know, I don't know whether there's any opportunities to learn or get links from those offshore clusters that are elsewhere. And from RWE's perspective, sorry to put you on the spot again. But when you look at your supply chain, when you're building a wind farm, presumably the turbines come in from overseas. Are local businesses involved in building fences, building support facilities? Yes, yes, they are. So, I mean, with the two projects in the southwest of Wales there, you know, we use Swansea ports. There would be a whole load of probably second and third tier contractors that we would have used. And we did quite a lot of work locally to try and encourage them to, to be involved in the tenders. We ask top tier tenderers as well to report back on the amount of local use of contractors that they've done, the sort of value of that. And we're doing some studies looking into, you know, the economic benefits to a locality of onshore wind. It's kind of difficult without subsidies because on the one hand, you, you've got a drive to drive down costs. And then on the other hand, you've got a philosophical desire to increase local content, which might increase costs. So you've always got a slight tension around that, which is challenging depending on, on how your revenues come in and whether you need to be competitive in an auction or something. So, you know, those tensions exist. It's worth acknowledging that they're there, but companies will try and do the right thing, I think. Yeah, that brings us around to Mary's earlier point from a consumer perspective as well, isn't it? That we, we want renewable, we want green, we do care about the planet, but then we're also looking at the cost and trying to compare it, and it, it sometimes costs more to do the right thing. Mary, did you want to come in? Yeah, I also just wanted to add something that popped into my head when Anthony was speaking earlier about new builds. Mostly people are not putting in um, gas into new builds. I wanted to share that actually when Swansea Council was developing its passive house council housing, after a lot of engagement with prospective tenants, it was realised quite sadly that actually you, they, they were expected to put in a gas boiler and radiators. Really not necessary for passive house, but that was what people's expectation was and they didn't want to be seen as being fobbed off with a home that was less than they could expect in in other sectors you know and that that's a really interesting thing so I would say that yeah from the community engagement I, that I did at the green fair to prospective council house tenants who perhaps aren't that audience you've got a different perspective and it's definitely a generational thing you know people who perhaps grew up in homes without central heating and having central heating was seen as really desirable and of course it would be gas central heating and and that they've grown up in that situation and it's still seen as as the thing to want and and the thing to expect so there is still some work to do on that yeah and the challenge when things cost more but then looking at the true cost isn't it and the same goes with the local supply chain and the procurement argument is that the the community benefit and for the greater goods using local and regional businesses 
clearly has more long-term economic benefit, but the short-term costs, perhaps sometimes they're challenging, although not always. Chris? Yeah, I, I think looking at solutions to, to some of these problems. So, so the way Riversimple have gone about it is for us to make our cars, it costs a lot of money. And if, you, if you're out in the market to buy a Tesla, you know that new cars uh, with new technology that do the right thing for the planet costs a lot. And you're right. So convenience is important to consumers, as is cost. And if they're comparable, they will choose the one that does the right thing. But cost is a really important thing. So how do you get around that? Well, there are, especially in a world of really low financing rates, there are different business models and, and different ways of bringing things to market. And I, I'd like to point to the Welsh Government recently came out with their framework for manufacturing. It's in a consultation period at the time. At the moment, you can, you can actually go out and consult on it. One of the things that they stipulate in there is that going forward, local authorities and public bodies need to look at their procurement to create new markets. And so what's quite interesting, if governments don't have lots of spare capital hanging around to invest in projects, what they do have is this big procurement budget. Again, refocusing that on creating markets allows project to bring in the funding capital because you know, the contracted obligations that the governments can provide are, are, are very strong. And that's enough in many cases for people to lend against. So I think we need to look at new business models and different types of uh, delivery vehicles to get around the high hurdles of initial premiums. There's ways to do it. So it's been a really wide ranging discussion that we've had looking at all aspects of the challenge that's laid out. And from the various different perspectives in the room, I think we've all emerged various ideas of what needs to happen and what will make the difference in empowering the renewable energy sector and involving people and communities in, in behavior change as well. So to finish off this afternoon's discussion, I'm gonna to come to each of you in turn and ask you, what would you love to see? If you were in charge for a day, what would you change? What would you make happen? What's top of your wish list? So Chris, I'll come to you first. What would you love to see? Yeah, really, I'd love to see there be the same sort of enthusiasm for hydrogen passenger vehicles as there are for battery electric. Bring the deadline down to below 2030 because I think that will bring far more hydrogen vehicles to market, which are the technologies available. And that in turn will bring more renewable energy developments online. Thank you. Mary, let's come to you. I would like to see green technologies made more accessible and demystified and more affordable for consumers. And I think that, yeah, other, other people have, have already commented on this, but things like the renewable heat incentive, there's, there's all kinds of things that, that need to be done to help people feel empowered to make different choices. And part of that power is in being able to afford them. Thank you. Joe, shall we come to you? Similar to some of those other comments, I think to make this transition happen, it, it needs financial support. We've got those financial support mechanisms in place, both for the large scale generation and the small scale domestic level. But we need to ramp, ramp up with both. And that applies to hydrogen as well. It's going to need that revenue support to get things going. And then as we've seen with offshore wind, after that initial support, costs come down and then it's competitive with, with existing forms of generation. So, yeah, we, we just need more of that revenue support. Great. Dan, from the perspective of community energy projects, uh, what would you love to see? Yeah, so we're working with Swansea Council and Pembrokeshire Council to install solar on their buildings. We'd love to hear from other councils across the, in, in the region to try and get more solar installed in the public sector. And that will kind of help us sort of cross subsidise into taking, you know, working with businesses and community buildings where perhaps there's more, more risk going forward. We just want to be part of delivering the, the region's sort of climate change targets. And um, just tell us how people can get in touch with you if they're interested in community energy projects in their local areas or, as you've said, public sector. And they can send us a message on the egni.coop website or if they're in other parts of, of Wales, they can contact the Welsh Government Energy Service and also Community Energy Wales, as well as the umbrella organisation for the sector. Thanks, that's useful resources. Jeremy, if you were Prime Minister for a day, what would you do? What needs to happen? I'd, I'd probably try and look forward to what decarbonisation is going to look like in 2030, 2040 and 2050. 
and think about the infrastructure that will be needed for that and start to take measures now to deliver for that long-term gain so that it can happen. Yeah, I think you've made some key points about the infrastructure and particularly investment in the grid is a really key one. So looking at what the demand is going to be and, and the growth that we are forecasting, are we actually enabling that through investment now? Thanks, Jeremy. James, from your perspective, what needs to happen? I think Mary mentioned it earlier, public perception is a really key thing, particularly with some of the offshore renewables. Generally, I think that there's a certain sector of the public that are very supportive, and then there's others that are, are more not on my doorstep. You know, the landscape and seascape impacts of a, an offshore wind farm, for example, and how, and how that is perceived. Um, and maybe we need to improve education and, and that kind of thing in public to improve their understanding of what is actually being delivered by that. Yeah, perceptions and community and education engagement. Very yeah, important. I think so. Yeah. And so I'll come to you, Anthony. What, what's your perspective? What would you love to see? Almost word for word Mary's comments, to be fair. Demystifying renewable technologies, primarily for the homeowner. The homeowner's got no understanding, no desire to go down anything that's going to cost them more money unless they understand it fully and they, they, they don't look to that. But then following on from that, once you've demystified the end user, you've got to demystify the installer or the amount of installers that we would need. I think what the Renewable Heat Incentive together with MCS have done is made it something that your typical heating engineer is walking away from. Uh, they think, oh, it's too complicated for me and, and disappearing. So a bit of education in both an end user and an installer's perspective, uh, get get things going, get things rolling. We've been talking about fantastic things for a lot of many, many years now. They're all available, but they're just not happening quick enough, for, not for me, but I'm an impatient person. Yeah, knowledge is power, isn't it? Absolutely. Anthony? Yeah, great. I'm going to come to Zoe next, my co-host, who I haven't brought into the conversation at all so far. Zoe, what's your perspective? I'm just over the moon to be listening to all the renewable energy projects and initiatives that are going on across Southwest Wales. I used to run the National Energy Management Exhibition in Birmingham a number of years ago, and I spent most of my time travelling down to the southwest of England to talk about renewable energy. So I'm bursting with pride that it's all happening here on my doorstep. But I would agree with Mary and Anthony, like if I was in control for the day. I really think that in order to make change, we need to be talking about the consumers. I would love to know where I can get advice or grant support to be able to make my home more efficient and understand mechanisms to get the best green energy. So I think that is a really important step forward to be able to make change happen, basically. Yeah, I think that's right. We all want to know more about what's going on. And I think one of the key roles that we can all contribute to is talking to each other across the region as a sector and engaging people and businesses in that conversation as much as possible. And of course, that's our mission at For the Region to help co-create that vision of what we want our economy and our society to look like. And clean green energy has to be a massive part of that. And we need everyone working together with a sort of clear set of values. But often it then comes down to public sector investment and not just grants and investment in renewable energy specifically, but as Chris and others have already mentioned today, procurement back at the top of the agenda, how that massive public sector spend that is already happening can be better leveraged to support the renewable energy sector and its possibilities and potential for the future of our region. I really hope that's been a useful and insightful conversation for all of you listening. I'm sure you share our passion for seeing greener, cleaner energy really taking root and growing in Southwest Wales. And as has already been mentioned, we have so much natural assets in our region that we must leverage, not just for short-term gain, but for the long-term economic and environmental benefit. Thanks so much for listening and thank you to all of our guests for taking part in this morning's conversation. Tune in again next week for another insightful conversation from our region's changemakers and experts about how we can build back better for the future well-being of Southwest Wales. Thanks very much. 